pop quiz. You didn't know you were going to be tested uh, when you came to church tonight. I didn't know that uh, I was going to test you because I'm testing myself as well. Was it known by some, could it have been known, of the, about the incarnation? Could it have been known that Messiah would come in the flesh? And was it known and anticipated by some? Absolutely it was. Uh, maybe even many, but certainly a, a number who were identified in Scripture. Was it anticipated and known uh, by some that he would be put to death? Maybe, maybe they didn't know for sure that it would be by the cross. Probably they did because Rome was in control at that time, and that's how they went about doing things. In fact, uh, in, uh, in John 13, they said, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to get you. And that's why he said in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Could it have been known that he would rise from the dead? Yes, not as much Old Testament content, but there were some, and he said it in so many words and ways any number of times. I can't think of a single person who anticipated the grave being empty the tomb being empty on the third, after the third night and day. Can you think of anyone who went to the tomb saying, I'm going to confirm what I already know and what I believe by faith? I can't think of a single person. And I don't believe I've ever had that thought in 46 years of walking with the Lord. If I have, I don't ever recall that it's ever occurred to me they did not really anticipate that he was going to be raised. Now, to be sure, his enemies said that he claimed. Now, if they knew, the apostles should have known, right? Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus and, and the rest, they should have known. And yet, I don't recall a single biblical example of someone going to the grave anticipating in fact, even when they heard that he had been risen from the grave, I don't know of one who immediately said, well, of course, he told us that he would right then. It seemed like he was very, very slow in coming that he would rise from the dead. Am, am I missing something? Okay. The crickets are giving uh, testimony that... Uh, you can't think of anyone either, can you? Who definitively knew that he would rise from the dead on that Sunday morning. I can't think of one. Well, that is all the more reason to have a potent, <laughs> apolog a powerful, apologetic, being able to give a defense because folks, the masses out in the world, oh, they may know of the resurrection of Christ and may even say, well, I believe that that happened but really couldn't tell you why it is fundamentally, it is a cardinal doctrine of the faith of why it must be embraced and what embracing that doctrine actually does mean. And so the theology of apologetics is giving a defense, giving a reason for not only what you believe, but why you believe it. 
And we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. We've looked at this text before, but not in this light, not in the light of the defense of the faith regarding the resurrection of Christ. And that's what they preached in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, they talked about him rising from the dead as a defense for the faith, as a reason why you ought to believe. Acts chapter 2, if you'd make your way there, beginning in verse 22, Acts 2 and verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. So Peter is preaching to those who had gathered for uh, the Passover, and then, and then 50 days later for Pentecost. And he says, you know this to be true. Uh, I'm not telling you anything new. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, it wasn't by mistake. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't by surprise. God had foreordained. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. In other words, you're still responsible for, for your actions. Just because it was decreed in the mind of the Godhead in eternity past does not mean that you are guiltless. In fact, you are guilty. Whom God hath raised up. And by the way, who else put him on the cross? Who else? Yeah. Because of your sin and my sin. And of course, you extrapolate it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. For as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Whom God had raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David speaks concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice. My tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in, in Hades in the grave, neither wilt thou allow thine Holy One to see corruption." Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. In other words, through your lineage, there's going to be a, a Messiah, the ruler. The Ancient of Days is going to come and he's going to sit on the throne of David. He, seeing this before, that is David, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up where we were all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. What has what he shed forth? The, the capacity to speak in multiple languages uh, present there on the day of Pentecost. He, he, he's making it manifest, and he's making this available. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, because of all of this, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made th that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent, be baptized, 
every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises made unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as our Lord, our God, shall call. So if you're a believer, it's because God called you. You were afar off, but he called you. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. You see right there in, in verse 41, you have the first rudimentary intimation of church membership. You see, they counted who all got saved. They actually took note and took the names, if you will, of those who did say, yes, Lord Jesus, save me, because this was now the church. And, uh, and they had uh, membership, as it were. They knew who was part of the body of Christ in that first moment after conversion. So, Christ's resurrection, a potent, a powerful apologetic. Three notes uh, if you're taking uh, points, if you're taking notes, uh, three primary points, I should say, about, uh, about this very issue. First of all, his resurrection proves his lordship, verses 22 to 36. And I shared a bit about uh, that this morning. It proves his lordship because it's a miracle. It's impossible for this to happen uh, short of God doing it. He must do it. Now, to be sure, uh, there were those raised from the dead through God working miraculous means uh, in and through the lives of humans. But the bottom line is a resurrection from the dead is a divine work. And it proves his lordship. And that begs the question, what is lordship? It's absolute authority. It's absolute jurisdiction. And so if I say Jesus is mine and I am his, that is, I know him, what I'm saying is he is the ruler of my life or I'm lying. Or in that moment of sin as a believer, I'm basically saying, I'm, uh, I'm going to go AWOL. I'm going to go away without leave for this situation. And then, of course, then he's going to deal with me because he doesn't let his uh, child just go off into the world playing in the traffic, as it were, of the world. Uh, he will deal with me. But it means that he is the Lord of my life. So how is that an apologetic? Because those who know, knew you before uh, and know you now ought to be able to see a real difference. And it's not just because you were living in the gutter, as I was. It was, uh, it's probably, it was probably more easy, it's probably easier to see me at age 19 and then see me at age 21 because I got saved at age 20 and uh, I was dead. I was a dead man walking at age 19, filled, completely filled with the world with no fear of God, no thought of God in my life. And got saved at 20. And then at 21, uh, I'm talking to you about being born again. There was a real distinct change. But for every child of God, there must be some change. A radical change because you were lost, now you're found. You were blind, now you see. You were dead, now you're alive. That is evidence of the transforming power of the gospel and of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, we're preaching through Philippians, as you know, on Sunday mornings. We've not got to chapter 2 yet, 
But it says, wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. He's the sovereign one. He's the Lord. He's the master. In the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, folks, that will happen one day. It will either happen at the point of conversion and you come and know him personally, or it will happen at the great white throne judgment where every knee will bow before him and understand he, it doesn't change his lordship, it just means that at, at some point in time, every human who's ever lived will say he is Lord. And so his resurrection didn't make him Lord. His resurrection manifested his lordship. He's been Lord for all eternity. Amen? You understand that? He's always, he's the ancient of days. Um, he's before anything. He, what Micah 5, 2 says, his goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. But his resurrection showcased his lordship. Well, that's good to put that on display. And so make much of the resurrection in your witnessing. A couple of subpoints, if you will. First of all, his supernatural life and his substitutionary death was preparatory. It prepared the way. He, he lived and he died in such a way as to demonstrate this is the God-man. His supernatural works, verses 22 through 24, validated that because only God could do these things. No man do. Nicodemus, you remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus, who are you? No one can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And that was at the very beginning of his earthly ministry in John chapter 3. And so that supernatural life, that perfect life, um, demonstrated that, um, demonstrated his lordship. And it was preparatory because it, it allowed the world to see that he lived a life of perfection to the degree that Pontius Pilate, who certainly would have been in the know of what was going on, said, I find no fault in him. He is not guilty. Well, of course, his resurrection demonstrated his, that he lived a perfect life because he rose from the dead. He was able to be the payment for the sinner. Secondly, about this idea of his resurrection uh, proving his lordship, it was prophetic. Verses 25 to 36 gives in great detail from Psalm chapter 16, a messianic psalm. And it says that Christ would not stay in the place of the dead. His flesh would not be corrupted. And David, it says David was not referring to himself. Notice in verse 29, it says... Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you. David, that he is both dead and buried. His sepulcher, we know where his grave is. He's still there. He, he said, Peter said, David was not speaking about himself. He was referencing the Holy One would not stay in the grave. Intimating that he would, in fact, be resurrected. Re resurrected. So, so he is Lord by virtue of his res resurrection. How that's an apologetic, how that helps you in your witnessing is you will be able 
to say to someone who wants to kind of ride the fence, well, that's your, that's your belief, uh, uh, that's somebody else's belief, and, and this is my way, and I have my own uh, religion and this and that. Pin that person in a kind-hearted way, uh, but pin that person against the wall and say, now, are you saying that the resurrection did not happen? Oh, no, 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 uh, uh, I wouldn't say that. So you're saying it did happen. Well, I guess so. Well, if it did happen, that means Christ is Lord. You, you see? Now, that's not a rational kind of a thing. Uh, that is helping the person see, Brother Larry, his or her own inconsistencies. Trip him up, trip her up in self, I think self-contradiction is the term you use, self-contradiction. Well, that's your way. I, I, I don't want to push that or I'll, I'll go my, I'll believe what I want to believe. Wait a minute. Is he resurrected or is he in the tomb? Oh no, he's out of the tomb. He's resurrected. Okay, therefore, by virtue of that, he must in fact be Lord. Have you surrendered to his lordship? So there is an apologetic that you can use. Secondly, another apologetic. Christ's resurrection has provided a relationship. Verses 37 to 41 talks about that. Uh, he, his, his crucifixion was on display through the darkness of a cave. cave. But his resurrection brought a, the dawning of a new day for himself as well as for all who have come to know him. Just think about how, how many here got saved as an adult or kind of an adult? So you remember it probably a little more clearly than, uh, than Mark. He was, uh, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb almost. Um, and you can remember the light turning on. I mean, folks, uh, I saw the universe in a different way. The flowers were more beautiful. The sky was more blue. Um, my heart was filled with gratefulness for all of the blessings that I hadn't even noticed up to that point. Y'all appreciate what I'm saying? I was changed. I'd entered into a relationship with almighty and all-merciful God. Wow, what an apologetic that is. He birthed the church Right about that time, in fact, I don't know who said it, but the empty tomb, that is the resurrection of Christ, has been the cradle of the church. It's where we were born. It's why we were born. Um, the crucifixion, uh, maybe, maybe that was the conception. That, uh, uh, that brought about the life, but the resurrection brought it forward. And that was the case with Christ. He came out of the tomb and was evident to over 500 people at one time and then went on for weeks in his resurrected body. Well, how does it provide a relationship for those who would turn to him? First of all, verse 37, because of that, notice now, don't, don't pass up verse 36. Therefore, because of what I've just told you, let everybody know that God hath made this Jesus the one you have crucified made him Lord and Christ. And because of that, notice in verse 37, they were stabbed. They were pierced in their hearts. Um, and really they had, those who, uh, those who were, were pierced, they had instantaneous and unexpected conviction of their sin, remorse, 
conviction unto repentance. In fact, the rest of the text uh, bears out. And so the first thing uh, in the relationship, I have been made aware. He has uh, awakened me, woke me up to, (laughs) I became woke. (laughs) I don't think I've ever said that. But in this context, it is. That's, That's the case. Amen? You woke up by the grace of God. Your heart was gripped. You were shown your sin, your depravity, his mercy, and the Spirit of God was tugging at your heart, drawing you to himself. And then what happened? Well, it brings conversion. It brings conversion. So it brings conviction first and then conversion because there's no such thing as an indifferent salvation. I can take him or leave him. Well, then you didn't get saved. It's with the heart one believes unto righteousness, resulting in salvation, Romans chapter um, 10 teaches us. And so before they were enemies of God, now they're friends, they're children, they're saints of the Lord. Um, They came out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, I don't remember the author who wrote Crown Him with many crowns. Crown Him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife. What strife? Well, the battle over the souls of lost people. For those He came to save. His glories now we sing. I never sang His glory before, but His glories now we sing. Who died? And rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. That's one of my favorite lines in all of hymnology. He lives that death may die. And that's the only way death dies, is the life of Christ. Amen? So, he he provided that relationship. Um, And so, saved people are changed people. This text makes it very clear because of the resurrection. Um... Peter was no longer denying. The apostles were no longer hiding. They were right out there on, on, on the cutting edge uh, in the front lines of the battle, standing strong and firm uh, and fervent for the gospel's sake. Just days earlier, weeks earlier, uh, in this case, because this was Pentecost, they were hiding and denying and uh, and. and and doubting, and uh, oh, he's dead now, let's go, fi- I'm going fishing, okay, we'll go too, and, and all the rest. And then when he rose from the dead uh, and the Spirit came, they, they were empowered. Notice also, those who, rec- uh, who got saved, notice in verse 39, if you would, it brings conversion to the point that... Um, um, no, it's not verse 30. Uh, verse 41. Verse 41. Then those who gladly received the word, the gospel, were saved. They gladly received. And then what followed, gladly, what followed conversion? Public baptism. Now, public baptism to us, uh, uh, it's a nice thing. Uh, people ought to be scripturally baptized. In first century Jerusalem, and you're saying publicly, I am following uh, uh, the crucified, risen Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. You know the one, uh, uh, the carpenter's son uh, who is going around doing that very one? I'm now aligned with him. 
well, you might as well, you might as well just go on and die today because you are going to face profound persecution, rejection from your family, loss of your job, uh, and the like. And you take somebody like Matthew, oh my, he was hated by virtue of being a tax collector. Now he's doubly hated because he's a tax collector who is a Jew turned against his own people uh, and pocketing the money that Rome was giving him. Uh, And now he's a follower of this blasphemer they believed. I mean, your life is over. You all appreciate that? And so they obeyed as evidence of their faith. A person is not going to die, uh, not going to be disowned by family, lose job for something that he or she does not believe. You all follow that? That's not rational. You would only do that if you are basically staking your life on this. And they did. And so that is a good apologetic to use in sharing the Lord with the lost. Thirdly, we see in verse 42, and this segues into from, from the last point to this one, Christ's resurrection produces discipleship. Notice in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly. It wasn't a one and done, one day, okay, now go on with their lives. No, no, no. They were changed, and they continued to be changed. They continued, the present tense verb, steadfastly, not passively, uh, not nonchalant, but fervently in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread, and in prayers. Folks, there's no such thing as optional discipleship for a a child of God. It's not optional. If you're a believer, by definition, you are a disciple because you're following in the disciplines of the Lord. And uh, I tell you what, uh, there's not optional discipleship for me because if I opt out, then what am I inviting in? Profound conviction of sin, right? Can you sin and get away with it? See, I can sin with the best of you. I'm not bragging about it. I'm saying I know me. 46 years of walking with the Lord. And I guess I'm occasionally surprised at what I do I shouldn't do and don't do what I should do. uh, But not usually surprised. But I'm not living there. Right? Because there isn't any thing as being a blood-washed, blood-bought child of God. And then uh, maybe, maybe I'll hook on, maybe I'll attach his lordship to it sometime later. No, you don't. He is not Lord because you say he is Lord. He is Lord. And now, whether or not I'm going to yield to that, that's an issue of being a rebellious child or an obedient child. Christ's resurrection produces our discipleship. Here's a good verse for it. Uh, You'll have to look it up and give me the the reference. I I know how to quote it, but I don't know where it's found exactly. It's God who works in you to do what? Both to do, will and to do of his good pleasure. Somebody look that up so I can give reference to those who are watching in Ethiopia right now or, or uh, Taiwan or somewhere. Uh, it's God who works in you. By the way, that's the word for energy. It's God who plugs in the plug to the outlet, which energizes you to will, that is you want, and to do his good pleasure, to actually do it. Who has that verse? Where is it found? Philippians. Oh, I better know that one. We're preaching through Philippians. <laughs> Philippians. Well, I haven't gotten to chapter yet. Philippians 2 what? 13? Philippians 2, 13. I need to, to lock that in. 
Um, God does that work. No such thing as optional. If you're a child of God, you are a disciple. End of discussion, in my view, on that. And I say, why are you belaboring that? There have been whole books written about the issue of you can be a child of God, blood-bought, born again, and never opt for discipleship. It's not my option. <laughs> it's his command that I follow him. Amen? And so, um, enough of that. First of all, this discipleship, growing in him, commences with a godly attitude. And I've alluded to that. And they continued steadfastly. Because 2 Corinthians 5.17 says if anyone's in Christ, he's new. The old has passed away. Everything has become new. And Colossians 3.2 commands the believer, setting your affection all the time, continually setting your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. Folks, when I, as a child of God, uh, set, uh, set my attention, my affections, my intentions on the things of the world, my soul grows lean, or, or grows lean, uh, that's kind of a, an oxymoron. It diminishes toward leanness. Y'all follow what I'm saying? And I, I have to believe yours does too, does too. But when I abide in him, and when I follow willingly, enthusiastically, from a heart of love, his principles, then my soul grows fat. And I am more and more in love with him. So it begins with that godly attitude. And of course, it continues throughout life with godly activity. I don't have to be here tonight. I get to be here. I don't have to teach a Sunday school class. I get to, as long as my voice will hold out. And it's lean tonight. I mean, I'm, my, my, my vocal cords are barely flapping right now. <laughs> it, uh, it may not seem that way to you, but it does to me. And it's all Mark's fault. It's because of those songs that I just have to bellow it out. <laughs> Arise, my love. <laughs> I mean, it's that, it's that kind of thrill in him that, <laughs> well, if I didn't let it out, I might, get, I might hurt myself, you know. So, so those who know him begin taking on his disciplines. John Stott, a great former, or not former, but late uh, theologian, wrote uh, his book, Basic Christianity. And he said, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. It's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and then telling me to live like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like that. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like that. Because you're his disciple. He is doing it. It's God who works in you. And if He's not, if there's no evidence of him working in you, that's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 11. Examine yourself. Are you really in the faith? It's what I read 
in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. You are secure in him unless you believed in vain. That is, it wasn't genuine saving faith. And so we're admonished, we're called to really examine. Analyze, if you will, uh, uh, do some inspection of fruit, not in your neighbor's life, in your life. I've got enough to worry about in my own life to be judging you. Amen? <laughs> okay? And don't, so don't do that with one another or me. Yes, we are our brother's keeper, uh, but I'm talking about the innermost you. What is going on with just you and the Lord? And uh, he makes that, me, that very clear in my life when I'm not yielded to him, when I'm coasting. So can you go week after week, month after month, with little regard for the things of God? i got to believe no. The answer is no. You, you can't do that because you all are saved. You're disciples. If you can do that, if there's not that passion for the Lord, moment by moment, day by day, then evaluate where you are with Him. Verse, verse 42, it, it is intimating. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. And they didn't just do that for a moment. They did that for years and decades until the end of the New Testament. And that's the last record we have of them. To the degree that you remember this was about 33, 34, 35 A.D., 20 to 30 years later, when the Apostle Paul was making an appeal for a missions offering. You remember that? Who was going to receive that missions offering? The Church of Jerusalem. They were in, they were in desperate condition. Destitute. What? They got saved and baptized. They lost their jobs. Families disowned them. I mean, they were barely living on scraps. The mother church of Christianity needed help from all the other Gentile churches just to put food on the table. They sacrificed. They made his lordship known to all who would hear. And folks, if they did it, we can as well in a much, much less hostile situation that they were experiencing. Christ the Lord is risen today. Charles Wesley wrote, Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head, made like Him, that is flesh and blood, who will die one day. Like Him, we rise. One day we'll be risen and in His presence. But in the meantime, ours, the cross, that is, we're going to bear the gospel. The grave, if it doesn't kill us, someone else may. That is, kill us pouring out our lives for the sake of the gospel. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. We're, we're going to be with Him. Hallelujah, as the song ends. It's an apologetic. It's a defense for the faith. It is a message worth telling and telling all our days. Lord, I'm thankful for this, your word, and how my life has been changed because of it. So many here, if not in fact everyone here, 
who has uh, the ability to understand. Our lives have been changed by you. You have done this work. We're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God. In believing, hearing, in believing, receiving, embracing the gospel. And Lord, you've left us here now as witnesses unto you in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. To spiritualize it, Lord, we are in the uttermost parts of the earth as a local congregation through Faith Promise Missions, uh, through Haiti Home of Hope, through Movements for Tomorrow. Would you bless this people group, sons and daughters of God, on this corner, that Jerusalem would also be changed, our very own backyard. So thankful. There was fruit, even this morning, from the home visits done Friday and Saturday. To God be the glory. And so we give you thanks. Would you do and, and continue that work until you call your church home, Lord Jesus, for your glory, for our good, and the salvation of souls. Use us toward that end. In your name.